2 Samuel 11, David and Bathsheba. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The men said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent his, this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, and how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants, and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying, are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat and among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah on the front lines where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab and the city under siege had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob Besheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent, had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against this city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But 
the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Good morning, everybody. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to be with you. Now, this is a sobering account of how one sin grew into many sins, how a king stayed home from war, how he acted on the lust of his heart, how he tried to cover up his actions to save face, how he betrayed a loyal soldier, how he forced his commander to do the dirty work, putting his entire army at risk, how he thought he got away with it all with a coded exchange at the end. If throughout this series on the life of David, you have come to like him, the, this, this foreshadow of the true king of Israel, maybe now you're wondering what you saw in the guy. Maybe you're wondering what God saw in the guy. How can anyone be capable of this sort of evil? This could be the plot in House of Cards, right? This is wicked stuff. David strayed about as far from the, the role of king that, that, that is after God's heart that, that you can imagine. We've talked about how a king after God's own heart means a, a king who rules like God would rule because they are like God. Well, well, this is not how God would rule, using his power for personal gratification and to take advantage of others. This is a sobering passage. As we walk through this, let's start with noticing where David could have been. So in verse 1 we read, In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. So it's in the springtime, and David might have been with the armies, either preparing for battle against Israelites' enemies or making ready its defense. He might have been seeking peace with neighboring countries. But instead, we see that he stayed home in Jerusalem. That's where the story starts. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now, David makes a number of decisions in this passage. The first decision he made, make no mistake, was to remain home and to allow Joab to lead the Israelite army in his stead. And they weren't just sitting at an encampment. No, that they are attacking an Ammonite city. Verse 2 tells us this. Actually, the, the second half of verse 1 tells us this. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. There's a lot the text doesn't tell us. Um, so we might be prone to wonder, was David sick? Uh, was, was there some other matter of state that David was preoccupied with? I think an important principle in the interpretation of scripture, or, or really any text, is, is to take a story on its own terms. Um, the writer didn't think it was important to include David's reasons. The way our passage opens heavily implies that David was not where he should have been. And that is part of the problem. 
Verse 2 tells us what happens next. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. No, well, in fact, let me say that our English text starts with those words, one evening, David got up. And, and the Hebrew is a little more ambiguous than that. Uh, it says, at this time. That's what the text reads, at this time. And actually, the parallel passage in Chronicles is just as ambiguous. It says, at the, at the time when kings go forth. We might assume that, that it's evening because he's getting out of bed. One evening, David got up from his bed. Um, but we might equally assume that it was an afternoon siesta. And he was, he was pacing the roof in contemplation uh, of some deeply troubling matter. We don't know. We don't know. But from his roof, high above the rest of Israel, he sees a beautiful woman. The Hebrew adds, a beautiful woman to look at. And that, that phrase, to look at, it can mean to see, or it can mean something deeper, a deeper sort of observation, to inspect, to stare at, or, or even sometimes to spy on. We're told that she's on her roof bathing. Um, and, and verse 4 kind of clarifies what she was doing up there. It says she had purified herself from her uncleanness. She was engaging in a more uh, ritual purification, which, which women will do following their menstrual cycle. Um, it is very unlikely that she was doing something that was meant to seduce. Very unlikely. And so David does his research to find the name of this woman. Verse 3. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? What we see here is that David acts on this inner desire. Um, perhaps this is a lust that he has not yet identified. I mean, who knows? Um, this, this woman might have been single. She might have been eligible for marriage. The thing we know from this story is that David certainly wasn't eligible for marriage. He was married already. He's a married dude on Tinder. We know that he's married to Michal, along with five other wives. And while the, the Bible's patriarchs were less than monogamous, there is a direct command to kings to have one wife. The law of Moses clearly commands future kings. This is what it says. He, that is the future king, should not multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. There was some wisdom in that. He should not multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. The wisdom in this is that one wife would help keep a king's heart true. And you know, we've been comparing in this series, David and Saul, and for all of Saul's flaws, he is a counterpoint to David in this regard. As David would amass a total of eight wives and have 18 children, Saul only had one wife. Saul was obedient to the law of Moses in this regard. But David had already strayed from the principle of monogamy. And so he was looking, perhaps, to add to his concubine, to his harem. So what does he do when he realizes that she isn't home alone, that in fact that she's the daughter of Eliam, she has a family, and that she isn't single, in fact she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Let's read it together in verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. 
Then he went back home. So David brings her to her, his palace. You know, when considering a, a woman's fertility window, I'm just doing the math, we can infer that David actually acted pretty quickly. Getting Bathsheba's information, bringing her to him, and then actually sleeping with her. It was a matter of days, not weeks. My mind starts to wonder, does she have a choice? I think our mind wants to ask questions about our Bathsheba, and our, our mind wants to maybe even find a way to validate or vindicate David. But he's the person on display here. I mean, messengers from the king, inquiries from the king. Verse 5 refers to Bathsheba as not her name, but the, the woman. I mean, it, it further underlies the, the, the fact that David had been merely seeing her as the woman, as this object even, rather than a person with a name. The narrative doesn't focus on the uncertainty in her story, in her situation, what it meant for her family and those that knew her. The, the, the story focuses on David. Um, and, and my imagination in reading this thinks about the people in, in the service of the king that knew something, that had to live with that secret. Uh, even if David did get away with it, they had to live with that secret that their king did this. I'm going to speed up through the rest of this story. I'm going to slow down at certain points. But what we see is not just one sin, lust and adultery. But we see many sins used to cover up that first sin. David sends a messenger to the army captain, um, to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. That's he, what he says in verse 6, after he learns that, that in fact, Bathsheba is pregnant. Someone literally had to do that job. Someone literally had to jump on a horseback or by other means and quickly run to Joab. Bathsheba knows she's pregnant. Maybe she doesn't have visible outward signs of it yet. And Uriah returns. And David is all buddy-buddy with him in this moment. How's Joab? How's the, how are the soldiers? How's the war going? Okay, enough small talk. Go home. I'll send a gift with you. Of course, we know to David's dismay that Uriah is a man of principle, and he sleeps outside of the castle or outside of the palace walls. And here's, here's Uriah's explanation for that in verse 11. He said, the ark and Israel are staying in tents. You know that ark that David longed to be brought into Jerusalem, that he might dwell forever in the house of the Lord? You know that one that isn't so much on David's mind anymore? He continues, and my master Joab and the Lord's men are camped in open fields. You know, we're at war, <laughs> don't you? Your men are literally in an active campaign. He goes on, how could I go into my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as I live, I will not do such a thing. I mean, these are the very things that David was doing. 
His mind is far from the ark of the Lord. His mind is far from the, the commander and his armies and all those that are under his care. His mind is instead closer to just merely eating and drinking and lovemaking. It's like he's being smacked in the face with his own actions. You know, your friend can't, can't play because they're studying for the test that you were planning to cheat on. Your spouse is actually planning to rest on this Sabbath that you were planning to work through. Sometimes we assume a person is going to act in a certain way in a situation, and they surprise us because actually <laughs> maybe our sin has clouded our vision, and we assume that they are going to act out of the same values that we're living in right now. Our sin has clouded our vision. Well, well David, being the man for the job here, he thinks wine's going to do the trick. Um, so even after a, a night of becoming drunk, Uriah spends what he knows to be his last night in the servants' quarters. I mean, so this is David's last effort now to save face. Because that's what this is about. This is about saving face. This is his last effort to have Uriah killed. In verse 14, we read this. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. I find it so striking that Uriah was so trusted by the king that he was expected to not even peek at the letter he was being sent with. You know, he was literally the person that was carrying the letter commanding for his death. I mean, think about that. I imagine this was such a difficult job for Joab to do. You see, Uriah wasn't just a soldier. I mean, he's listed among your, the David's 37 mighty men, many of whom are believed to have stayed with him when he was fleeing from King Saul. I mean, his mighty men were faithful to him throughout his whole career. David fought side by side with his mighty men. Uriah was close enough to both Uriah and Joab that when David asked him, how's Joab doing, Uriah was expected to have something to say. I mean, could you imagine meeting with the president and you're a private in the army and, and he's asking how the highest ranking commander of the, uh, the, the highest ranking officer is doing. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Uriah was actually probably a personal friend. I also imagine that Uriah lived close enough to the palace because he was in David's trusted inner circle. This is who Joab was commanded to have killed. It's not an easy job. When news returns to David of the army's losses and of Uriah's death, David's anger could have been stirred. Maybe it should have been stirred, but it wasn't. David instead feigns this this inner strength to encourage his commander send this message back to joab when in fact joab was used as his secret executioner of perhaps a personal friend don't let this upset you the sword devours one as well as another i mean think about that those words turned on their head when it's in fact someone you know, someone you trust, someone who's part of your inner circle. 
say this to encourage Joab. I mean, what hypocrisy in those words. This story ends in a state of sin, right? And David is self-justified. Maybe he'll say, all is fair in love and war. If his goal was just to save face in the public arena, it, appear, it appears that he succeeded in that. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard about her husband, that he was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Again, Bathsheba is not referred to her by her name, right, in verse 26, Uriah's wife. Uriah's death here is not insignificant. Um, I mean, she mourns. She's sad. And likely after being, again, brought in to the, the king's palace, she's still sad, I imagine. This time, when David does bring her in, they're married. They bear a son. Um, so far as appearances went, everything is settled down. Everything's as it should be. Everything's as it was. David has added to his concubine another woman, perhaps even in tribute to, to his soldier's death. How valiant. Those close to the king, by contrast, knew that injustice had been done. And yet, it apparently goes unpunished. With only a mention at the end of this chapter that God was displeased. I mean, so what do we do with a story like this? And what is God communicating to us through it? I'm going to quickly mention three lessons, three takeaways, but understand this is also part one. And next week, we're coming back to this story to see how it resolves. The first lesson that we see through this is that Christians are susceptible to sin. I mean, even Christians can commit truly evil deeds. Everyone, even biblical heroes, have sin in their hearts. And people are often surprised when they, they read a story of a great biblical hero and how sinful they can be. I mean, this is the opposite of servant leadership. This is exploitative leadership. We're left at the end of this passage wondering if, if what we're seeing now is David's fall from grace. Maybe like Saul, David has this, this downfall. Perhaps, perhaps our minds want to go there, and perhaps it's so surprising when we see the sin in biblical characters because we're scared to admit the depths of our own brokenness. I mean, in Christian circles, we often want to tell polished testimonies where we were broken yesterday and today we are whole and healed that we were a sinner last night but today no more never shall we sin again we want polished testimonies that we're all good now now that we're saved and the sad thing is that sometimes these are the only source of stories people feel safe to share about in some churches the truth is the human heart is capable of sin great sin great evil the human heart is capable of becoming sick with lust, with rage. A case could be made in this passage that David engaged in every single one of what the desert fathers would call the seven deadly sins. Lust, 
gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride. If even our hero David could go there, so can we. And that's our first lesson. Our second lesson is that sin is not simply an action, but rather sin creates a path that we're told in Scripture leads to destruction. Right? Sin is not simply an action, but it, but it creates an afterlife. One sin sets the stage for another sin. We know it. One lie turns into another lie. It's called the snowball effect. Sure, it may be part of our nature to lie, to manipulate. Research shows that 80% of four-year-olds lie to their parents. The other 20% lied about it. Biologists call this a survival instinct, um, noting that other animals, chimpanzees, pufferfish, even some plants, engage in behaviors to make others believe what they want them to believe. I'm playing dead is a good example. But we have all seen or experienced the effects of lies that eventually become hard to remember and keep straight. In this way, sin leaves a person further and further down a destructive path. We might think of the Clinton presidency and the former president's struggle to remake his public face. Maybe we think of Anna Karenina and, and Vronsky's descent from his honorable career. Sin has consequences that not even a king can escape. And we'll have to stay tuned to learn about those because we don't see those so much in our passage. It feels like David maybe got away with it. What is so significant is that the Bible remembers rather than erases the sins of its kings so that their lives can help us to repent and to walk in paths of righteousness that, that lead to freedom. God doesn't care so much for our public face as we do. Sometimes our reputations can keep us from repentance. What, what we find in this story is, is, is that David's first actions of being away from home when his armies went into battle. Um, they, they, these created a context out of which David was able to act without the normal layers of checks and balances. Perhaps he was even more vulnerable. Um, now, I want to make a quick caveat. I don't think it's wrong to have a tr attraction to another person. Um, I mean, if David was a single man in this scenario and he was inquiring about a single woman, I mean, that, that's a totally different story. It, it's not useful to expunge desire or pleasure from existence, but, but it needs to be bridled, lest it control us. I mean, that's the purpose of marriage, that God's order actually helps us to walk in paths of life rather than in things that feel good or right in the moment but ultimately are way more costly to ourselves and those around us. Which leads us into the third and final lesson. So as Christians, we're not saved so that we and those around us might only be half destroyed by our own sin, but saved for all eternity. I mean, sin is still sin, and it still has consequences in our hearts and in our lives. Just because there's grace doesn't mean that sin is any less harmful or destructive. It is. Paul says this in Romans 6, talking about grace. So what do we do? 
keep on sinning so that God can keep forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left our old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. We're lowered into the water. It's like the burial of Jesus. When we're raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace sovereign country salvation means freedom from sin even salvation means freedom from sin which is through the holy spirit empowerment we can enter into that now it's like living in a new country with with a with new principles um and it just occurs to me now to mention i mean we did a series two years ago on on for God's name's sake, right? That, that, that God is acting uh, really to, to, for, for his name, so that his name would be made known among the nations. And, and perhaps one of the things we trade when we become a Christian, right, is, is our reputation for participation in God's name, God's story, God's reputation. It's so much more powerful than just trying to build up our own little worlds and our own little kingdoms. I mean, God is doing something. God's name actually um, has, has a, just to use the, the term of saving face, right? God, God's term actually has a stronger, more durable, um, better, more honorable face than any of us could ever achieve on our own. Let's live in that country. Let me be clear, the hope of the Bible is not that we have to become morally superior than, than as characters, these main biblical characters that fall into great sin. The hope of the Bible is that, that Jesus paid the penalty for David's and our sins. And still, we have to hold on to, in the other hand, the reality that, that when we do sin, which we will, wisdom quickly repents, sometimes for very practical reasons, because sin creates a pathway of destruction not merely out of fear that we're going to lose our place among God's elect, but because God's ways lead to a good life. <laughs> Following God actually creates a better life than sin will, even though it feels the opposite in the moment for us and for those around us. So as I conclude, let me remind us that this is a sobering passage that is meant to stir us from apathetic spirituality. The fact that God saw means that God waited as the king stayed home from war, as the king acted on the lust of his own heart, as the king tried to cover up his actions to save face, as the king betrayed a loyal soldier, forcing a, a commander to do the dirty work of putting his entire army at risk, and as he thought he got away with it in the end. I hope that we have the courage to turn, even though it might cost our reputations or what we, what we feel is the base of our reputation, so that God can do his work. Because it isn't sinlessness that qualifies us among God's people, but
but it's the humility that comes from knowing our own brokenness. That's, that's what qualifies us. So this is part one. You'll have to come back next week to hear part two because there is more to this story. Would you pray with me? Um, Father, we are humbled um, as we consider the, the cost of grace, a grace big enough to cover over sin, um, sometimes big sins. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to examine our own hearts, um, our own, uh, the, the fact that we, we are capable of getting to the place David got, um, that, that it's not because David was uh, morally worse than we are, um, that, that he, he fell in this way. Um, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to repent um, and choose life, choose to walk in your ways, um, which we know is only possible through that vital relationship with you and through your Holy Spirit. Um, so I pray over this congregation um, in Jesus' name, amen.